In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Gabby. And I'm Rob. And this is Dark Origins Podcast, a podcast where I tell Rob about the inspirations behind all mediums of art. So movies, books, TV shows, etc. And sometimes we talk about times where life has imitated art. So this is exciting. This, this here is our post-COVID episode. Both of us, right? I mean, I got it. You're just getting over it, right? Yeah. Um, so you might be able to hear me breathing a little bit. I hear you breathing all the time. What do you mean? Oh, you mean the people listening. So I apologize. Right. I apologize if you can, if you hear me wheezing or anything like that. Yeah, just blame me. I got it. I gave it to her. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's not amused by that joke. It's not a joke. Like it's <laughs> no, not. I don't know what the joke about. I don't that know is. if it's a joke either. I'm trying to make a joke out of it. I don't know if it is. You gave you gave me a contagious disease. It's not like the, there's not really a joke there. <laughs> a contagious disease. It sounds so bad. Like communicable disease sounds better. I don't know why. I don't know about that, but this is something we can talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I hope we don't. <laughs> Me too. It's <laughs> really stupid. Okay. Okay. So today I'm going to be telling you about one of the murders A that murder. inspired the cult classic Black Christmas. Oh, yeah. You told me you were going to do this. Yes. I'm excited. So Black Christmas was actually inspired by two separate crimes. I'm 
thinking about maybe Maybe telling, it's a two-parter? Yeah, t- telling the other story um, the n- next episode, but um, I just don't know yet. So I'm sorry. I'm like so... I have such bad brain fog. Um, we might cover the other crime that inspired it next episode, or maybe I'll just save it till nah. next year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause I really wanted to get this done like on so that it would be done on Christmas, but because of dude, you've been so sick. Like yeah. I was really, really, really sick. And then you got really, really, really sick. Like it, I'm surprised we're doing an episode right now. I thought I was going to have to do one by myself. Yeah. It just, um, with Rob being sick and then with me getting sick, it just didn't work. So yeah, so we're doing it now and I don't want to, I know I hate when things are out of season, so I don't want to (laughs) like, um, continue the talking about Christmas, you know, in relation to movie black christmas we'll see we might do that or we might not if we don't then i will cover it next year cool around christmas time so if you haven't seen black christmas i won't like give anything away but basically it's a movie about it's it's very similar to like the babysitter getting phone calls from so like the calls coming from inside the house house. type type movie so basically it's a sorority they're getting these weird phone calls And there is a murder that happens in the town. And then one of the sorority sisters ends up going missing. (gasps) So they're trying to, you know, figure out who is leaving these calls because that has to be the person killing. Yeah. I mean, it has to be. Yeah. It couldn't possibly be independent. I mean. I mean, it would, it would be, (laughs) it would be. Kind of strange, crazy, coincidental. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're getting crank calls about weird stuff, and there's a murder. Yeah, like that. And I mean, they're not just like, just like prank calls. Like they're, you know, they're scary. They're. What's your favorite scary like, movie? <laughs> scary like that. Carry on. And we're gonna open our bubbly water. Not we're not sponsored by Bubbly, but I certainly love this stuff. Ooh, blackberry. I'm drinking San Pellegrino Lemonada. Okay. I know you are. That's all you drink. I know it's my favorite. That and Red Bull. Yeah. Okay. So the screenplay for Black Christmas was originally gonna be named Stop Me in reference to the message scrawled in lipstick at the crime scene of Francis Brown. This crime was one of three that would be connected to the quote-unquote lipstick killer because of this message but they ultimately decided to change the name of the screenplay but that's how we know that this case is directly linked yes inspired yeah yeah the movie the screenplay than the movie yeah i guess the case isn't linked i don't mean to say that the producers are guilty (laughs) yeah (laughs) They could be though. Okay. So Maybe. um no, I know, I'm just kidding. They're they're not. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> they're not. Okay. <laughs> You're just out here accusing people of murder. <laughs> so I am going to we're gonna just start by telling you about a man named William Hirons. 
He was born in a suburb of Chicago called Lincolnwood on November 15, 1928, to George and Margaret Hirons. His father was a first-generation American whose parents moved from Germany. Sorry if you can hear our dog Onyx scratching in the corner. He's <laughs> obsessed with doing that now. He just loves to be on the radio or, or on air. It's just so silly. William's father grew up working for his father's floral business. So William's grandfather's floral business. Yeah. Leading to him, leading him to open up a shop of his own once he became an adult. His father's business, unfortunately, was not successful in the family struggled financially when William was a child. This probably wasn't his father's fault, though. This was during the Great Depression, so it really just was a consequence of no one having money to buy flowers, you know? Right, the extra stuff. Yeah. His parents also fought constantly, which obviously compounded the stress of everyone in the house. When William was around nine years old, his father found steady employment with the police force of Carnegie Steel Company, where he was able to climb the ranks. His mother worked as well. At first, she worked in the flower shop before it closed down. She then transitioned to working in a bakery and finally making custom clothes for people. During this time period, women working was obviously much less common, but his mother wanted to work because she enjoyed it. I don't think that was the only reason she worked, though. It sounds like George had a pretty severe drinking problem, and he spent most of his time and money at the bar instead of at home with his family. Yeah. I mean, alcoholism, you know, if that's what he had, right. Uh, really rears its head in ugly ways, right? Like it affects everybody around you somehow. Yes, absolutely. Since all of the work fell on Margaret's shoulders, making her own money meant she could hire a housekeeper to at least help take some of the load off of her. Throughout his childhood, William sustained many injuries. A couple of them were to his head, which, I mean, people talk about it all the time. Head injuries obviously can have some pretty severe consequences on someone's, you know, behavior. And a lot of, there's definitely a correlation between head injuries as a child and Violence. Violence, yeah. That is not to say that everyone with a head injury... There is a correlation that sometimes... Yeah, yeah. It knocks a screw loose. Yeah. Something that was probably already twisted to begin with. And So his first injury occurred when he was seven months old. He fell from his stroller onto a cement floor 12 feet below where he was, which when I was reading this, I was like, I don't understand how that happened. I don't know if the stroller was sitting. I, I have no idea, but that's that is what the report said. He was in a stroller. Did the stroller fall, or did he fall out of the stroller? He fell out of the stroller. Okay, and then tumbled downstairs or landed twelve feet onto con- like fell twelve feet and landed onto concrete and lived. Yeah, yes. <laughs> don't know if it was a typo or what the fuck <laughs> holy shit but that that's what it said but i it think seems, that would kill me yeah it <laughs> seems like sure. that would kill uh, I mean, a seven 
seven month old baby. I mean, so listen, seven months old kids like their bones they're are very resilient, malleable. Yeah. I believe is the word. Yeah, they, they like can bounce. Yeah, I mean, don't drop your children. They can't really bounce, but also like your body is made to survive. Right? Yeah, so. that is very true. But either way, it did cause a head injury. I so. Bet. The second time he hit his head was when he was 12 years old. He fell down a cement staircase and he hit his head hard enough this time that he was unconscious. You're telling me he wasn't unconscious the first time? No, he wasn't. Fuck. Yeah. It's a hard-headed kid. Yeah, yeah. All right, so he falls. I'm sorry, he falls down the stairs. He's knocked out. That's a problem. Yes, yeah. It's not clear if it was related to either of his falls, but he ends up suffering from severe headaches as he gets older. So it it probably is, but it's there's a not correlation, clear. but we don't know for sure. Yeah, I mean, medicine back then isn't what it is now, and plus, like, uh, I don't even know if they'd be able to tell that now, like definitively. Yeah, I I mean, I think they could probably make a pretty I, I think they can probably make tell now guess. or yeah. make a better guess but sure. yeah at the time definitely there was no way to you're determine. saying they weren't doing like brain scans and no in yeah. the 30s yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay all right so back to that i just wanted to cover those injuries so that we know that they happened but we're gonna go back to his home life now Remember, his parents fought a lot. So in order to avoid their conflicts, William took to roaming the streets, which pretty quickly led to him engaging in criminal acts. He would steal often, but he never sold the items, so he wasn't stealing to make money. Instead, he said that stealing was just a fun outlet for him and a way for him to release tension. William had a younger brother that he spent most of his time with. If he wasn't with his brother, he was likely alone. He had a hard time forming relationships with others, so he never really made any other friends. One of the more concerning behaviors that William engaged in was sneaking into women's houses to play with their underwear. He had a very unhealthy what? Yeah. He had a very unhealthy relationship with women and sex thanks to his mom. Oh. She taught him that sex was a dirty thing and this inhibited his ability to experiment and mature sexually to the point that he would cry and vomit after just kissing a girl. According to those who knew him growing up, there were many girls interested in him. So it wasn't like... Even though he's a puker. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming he did that, you know, in the privacy of... Or he did it once, and it's embellished. Could be, but I mean... Maybe the girl had really bad breath. I mean, was Colgate in business yet? They didn't have Sensodyne, I don't think. <laughs> So, yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't like he was just this weird guy that girls weren't into. Like, right. girls liked him, but he couldn't reciprocate their feelings without feeling an immense amount of guilt and shame. So he stuck to exploring women secretly and from afar via their underwear drawer. Wait, so this dude can't kiss a girl, but he can go in and go panty sniffing? Apparently, yeah. It's weird. He enjoyed putting the underwear on himself and would occasionally take them with him to hide away in his grandma's attic. His crimes led him to be institutionalized at the ripe young age of 13 when he was arrested for carrying a gun. Police searched his parents' house and found his stash of stolen items. He had weapons, jewelry, cameras, coats, and much more. 
I'm not sure how exactly officers were able to find it because it wasn't actually in his house. Instead, it was in a shed that sat atop the roof of a building near his house. It's possible he told them where they could find it because he confessed to nine other burglaries at the time as well. So maybe he was just telling them everything. So he's not just shoplifting when you say stealing. That's what I was picturing. But this kid is breaking into homes. Yeah. He's just committing home invasion. Yeah. Yeah. As punishment, he was sent to, I don't know how to say this, but I'm assuming it's maybe Gibalt School for Boys, but only for a few months. He attempted to escape the school one time about three weeks into his stay, which was a failure. But after that hiccup, he was considered to be a well-behaved student that performed well and respected the authority around him. Student. He's in jail. He's in juvie. Yeah, right? but it it's a school. Right. It's like so, an academy kind of thing, like a school for boys, like yes, wayward yeah. boys. Like you send them there and they straighten them out. Yeah, I quite literally told you it's called the Jabalt School for Boys. You did. <laughs> right. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, f- I forget that those things exist. Yeah. I wonder how effective they actually are. I think it probably really depends on what. The student. Well, yeah, but also what what type of school are we talking about here? Because I think most of them probably don't work well because they are mostly using like fear and really like rigid. Like military style. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that can be good for some people, though. Not most, but. I mean, a lot of people, some. I think, just need structure. Yeah, but a lot of these schools are like overly punitive. They're not just providing structure. Like that's why I'm saying like, if there's a school that, that provides structure for kids, but also provides empathy and, you know, caring individuals and therapy and all of these other things. Yeah. I bet those types of schools are really successful, but the nuns with the ruler is probably not the best. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And I don't think that there are many of the type of school that I just described. And especially not like if they exist. Like a punishment school, you mean? Like they would be a punishment school, not like a therapeutic place where rehabilitation actually happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, he was only in there for a few months and then he was released and soon after getting out, he was caught stealing again and sent in, and sentenced to three years this time in a different institution called St. Bede Academy. This time he started excelling right away and he actually did really well while he was there, aside from one F that he got in English. Despite that F, he skipped his senior year and he got accepted to the University of Chicago after successfully completing placement tests when he was only 16. He began attending classes at the University of Chicago in 1945. He wasn't doing amazing, but he was passing his classes and getting average grades. Around this time, something strange started to happen in the city in Chicago. There was a spate of murders. So you're saying that This dude moves to Chicago. No, no, no. He's always lived in Chicago. Okay, he starts going to school in Chicago, and then murder starts. 
Yes. He's been released after three years. And we've got some murders. Yes. All right. I have a prime suspect in mind. Go ahead. <laughs> you might be surprised oh. when you when you hear dum, that. Bum, bum. So don't, don't jump to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> also, listen to the details of the murders because they're quite different. Okay. So the first one was the murder of 43-year-old Josephine Ross. She had been stabbed multiple times in her apartment in Chicago, obviously. Right. A dress was wrapped around her face, and she had seemed to pull a handful of dark hair out of her attacker's head. A witness came forward and said they saw a dark-haired man running from the building, but unfortunately, detectives weren't able to identify him. The second murder occurred on December 10th, 1945. This was the murder of Frances Brown. Okay. She had also been murdered in her Chicago apartment. She had been stabbed in the neck, the knife still sticking out of her when she was found, Ugh. and she had also been shot in the head. Interestingly, the killer used lipstick to write on her wall. They wrote, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Oh, with shit. randomly alternating lowercase and capital letters. He can't even control his handwriting. <laughs> Police isolated a bloody fingerprint on the door jam, and the night clerk told officers he saw a nervous-looking man who he believed to be between 35 and 45 leaving the building around 4 a.m. Remember so that's, that... That's, he's not that age. Yeah, he's 17. Other witnesses reported hearing gunshots around 4 a.m., so the timelines matched up perfectly. Less than a month later, on January 7th, 1946, police would already have another crime to solve. This one was quite different than the other two, and it began when six-year-old Suzanne Degnan's parents noticed she was missing from her bedroom that oh, was located no. on the first floor of a building in the Edgewater neighborhood. A ransom note had been left behind that said, Get $20,000 ready and wait for my word. Do not notify the FBI or police. Bills are in fives and tens. Burn this for her safety. The Dagnans received phone calls about the ransom multiple times, and it sounded like a man's voice. A ransom letter was also sent to the mayor at the time. It read, this is to tell you how sorry I am not to not get old Dagnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt, not to not? Yeah. I, he did fail English. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? This was in reference to the fact that Mr. Dagnan, Suzanne's father, was a senior executive at the Office of Price Administration, and there had been a nationwide meatpackers strike. The OPA was talking about extending rationing to dairy products, which had the meatpackers union even more upset than they were before. So just so everyone kind of understands what this means... The Office of Price Administration was an agency that created artificial ceilings on goods and services in order to slow post-war inflation. Right. Which we should have right now. Yeah. Yeah. So that is why the Meatpackers Union was upset because they were thinking of continuing to ration dairy products. Yeah. And the people in the factories were like, hell no, I need to make money too. Right. That makes sense. On both sides, honestly. It's yeah. a tough. That's a tough call. Yeah, yeah, it is. So they were thinking that maybe it was one of these meat packers who had 
kidnapped Suzanne in order to get back at her father or to get back at the Office of Price Administration. Yeah, that makes sense. While detectives investigated her disappearance, an anonymous tip was left for them. The tip told them where Suzanne could be found. It was grim. Her head was found in a sewer only a block from her house. Her right leg was found in a catch basin. The rest of her body had been found scattered between several different storm drains. Strangely enough, blood was found in the drains of laundry tubs in an apartment located nearby the Dignan's residence. So it seemed like that's where... He killed this poor kid. Yeah. Investigators determined she had been killed and then taken to that laundry room where she was dismembered. Due to the fact that the dismemberment had been done so well, the coroner said the killer must be either a man who worked in a profession that required the study of anatomy or one with a background in dissection. Not even the average doctor could be as skillful. It had to be a meat cutter. So that those were the coroner's words. That makes sense. Officers thought the perpetrator could possibly be Hector Verbug, a 65-year-old janitor in the building the Dagnans lived in, despite the fact that he didn't match the profile previously described by the Emmy or anyone else. He was a janitor, obviously, not a butcher or a doctor. Right. Investigators claimed Hector visited the murder room often, but they don't provide any evidence to back that up. So that we're just supposed to, I guess people are supposed to just go believe their word. <laughs> okay. The way I just thought that did not make it any made no sense. sense at all. I, I don't know what just happened. <laughs> okay, hold on. So the investigators said that they think that dude goes to the murder room a lot. Yeah. But it's the laundry room. Right. And, and he's, he's the, the janitor. janitor. Right. He also, you know what? This dude also spends a lot of time in the broom closet. <laughs> we need to check out the broom closet. I bet there's some nefarious materials in there. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess when you're when you're in their position and you're desperate to find something. Yeah. You know, you're, you're looking at all possibilities, of course, right? And yeah. Maybe that's just the best they had. Yeah. And yeah, I I can understand that, but yep. I don't understand how how they decide to go about it. So yeah. Hector was held for two full days where he was beat and interrogated, but he denied the accusations. Another piece of evidence that pointed to Hector's innocence was the fact that he was a Belgian immigrant who didn't speak great English. So it seemed unlikely he could have written the ransom note. Finally, Hector's union got him a lawyer who was able to get him released on a writ of habeas corpus. Of course. Now, you mentioned in there real quickly that he was beaten. Yes. So the police were interrogating him and smacking him around, but you can't do that. Could Was there no law for that then? I mean, this wasn't that long ago. I don't know what the laws were like, but they absolutely did do that and got away with it. Fucking assholes. This is what Hector said happened to him while he was in there. Hmm. He said, oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put up my arms. They are sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in the cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I know eat. I go to the hospital. Oh, I am so sick anymore. And I would have confessed to anything. 
After he was finally released, Hector spent 10 days in the hospital getting treatment for the injuries caused by investigators. Jesus. Hector would go on to sue the Chicago Police Department for $20,000, which he was awarded. Exactly the number in the ransom note. (laughs) I didn't even realize that. (laughs) So. (laughs) Wait. 20,000, huh? (laughs) Sounds familiar. So, so. He was awarded that and um, 5000 of it went to his wife because police tried to coerce her into implicating her husband. Wow. So the joint, they, it was like a joint suit, right? Like they're married, so they get the settlement together kind of thing. Yes, but it's still, they still gave him 15000 and her 5000 Yeah. So I don't know why they did it like that, but oh, whatever they did. I don't think, I don't think 15 grand. Well, maybe then, but 15,000, is that worth getting 10 days in the hospital? Like a beating so bad that you're in the hospital that long? No, I would think, I mean. I feel like they shortchanged the guy. I would obviously need to know what that. Exchange rate is? Yeah. Come on, look it up. Okay, so twenty thousand in forty five, nineteen forty five, right? It says that that be nineteen forty six, but three hundred and thirty three thousand four hundred seventy nine seventy seven. Okay, so that's that's definitely it's a house, a much better it's a small house. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that you should get more for you know being beaten so severely that you have to spend 10 days in the hospital because who knows what kind of lingering complications he's going to have. But I think that that's, you know, that's, it sounds $20,000 at first sounds like, whoa, that's doesn't sound like nearly enough for someone who's been beaten and spent 10 days, you know, in the hospital. It's not nothing, but not, it's not, that is not enough for 10 days in the hospital. No way. Yeah. I mean, nowadays it wouldn't even come close to covering your bill. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think things were different then in that respect, but still. Yeah. It's closer to fair. Yeah. Police had another lead they were working on, though. After scouring the multiple crime scenes, detectives found a piece of wire that they theorized could have been used like a garage. Nearby was a handkerchief with the initials S. Sherman inscribed on them they thought the handkerchief may have been used to gag Suzanne Dagnam. So that was used to gag her, and then the garrot yeah. used to choke, choke her. her out. Yeah. Looking into any and all S. Germans in the nearby vicinity led them to a former Marine who fought in World War II named Sidney Sherman. When investigators went to speak with him, they were surprised to find that he was on the lam. Police around the country mobilized to help look for the suspect, and they finally found him four days later in Toledo, Ohio. He told investigators that him and his girlfriend had left to get eloped, and he swore the handkerchief was not his. So police thought he was on the lam, but really he just had no idea they were looking for him, and he just happened to get eloped at that time. He passed a polygraph. He got eloped? Yes. You said he got eloped. You don't get eloped. You just eloped. To elope, whatever. He left to elope. Yeah. He just eloped. It's like eloped is almost like a full, it's all you need. 
But yeah, it was just just a bad coincidence. He passed a polygraph test and officers actually found the real owner of the handkerchief, which is kind of crazy to me. What? His name was Seymour Sherman and he lived in New York City. At the time of Suzanne's disappearance, he was out of the country and he was flabbergasted as to how his handkerchief ended up in a crime scene in Chicago. He's He's like, yeah, that's mine, but I was in Singapore, dude. Yeah. We still have no idea how that happened. So super weird. Still don't know. Yeah. But he's like, yeah, that's my monogrammed handkerchief. Yep. Wow. Investigators switched gears and began pursuing a different suspect named Richard Russell Thomas, a nurse from Phoenix, Arizona. But Richard hadn't lived in Phoenix long. In fact, he had only recently moved from Chicago. Hmm. Investigators were able to prove that he was in Chicago at the time that Suzanne Degnan was kidnapped and murdered. When police began investigating Richard, he was actually locked up in Phoenix for sexually assaulting his daughters. A handwriting expert in the Chicago PD was convinced that he was their perpetrator, and he felt strongly that the handwriting and use of certain phrases in the ransom note sent to Suzanne's family was uncannily similar to things used by Thomas in extortion notes he had written previously. This guy's doing extortion and he's a child molester? Yeah. He seems like the perfect suspect. I mean, yeah. Yeah. He also fit the profile since he was a nurse who would have a lot of knowledge. In cutting up bodies? Hold on, sorry. Yeah. A lot of knowledge in anatomy, but they said a doctor wouldn't be able to do it. And yes, I know they said a doctor wouldn't be able to do it, but that was just one of the... Um, you know, one guy people right. involved in the investigation. So everyone, most of the people involved in the investigation thought that it was either someone in the medical profession or someone like a butcher. Okay. Yeah. He's right. he's in the medical Prime profession. Prime suspect. And and yeah, there's so much others like all of the other stuff is yeah. That's just, that's a lot of, he he fits the profile pretty well. It seemed like a good lead and it became an even better lead as soon as he confessed. What? Yes. That was until they caught William Hirons in the middle of a burglary. Remember William? Oh, I remember William. <laughs> now, but this dude confessed. Now, did they hang him up to, you know, to the bars blindfolded and beat the shit out of him? We don't know about that, but I never read any reports that they did. Yeah, but it, it they're not that guy's probably not able to uh to tell anyone, right? I mean, he's an asshole. You know, he's the guy that's touching kids and is doing all his horrible things. You know, and they coerce this other guy Almost to the point of confession. Yeah. It's it's very possible that they did, but it ends up not mattering anyways. Well, right. I mean, but that's, I don't know. I, interrogation tactics like that very upset me greatly. Yeah, they upset me greatly as well. I'm just saying I never, I I wasn't able to find any reports that said that he was beat. Sure. Um, But I do agree agree with you I, I don't know if you would have been able to really tell anyone anyways or if anyone really would have listened yeah nobody gives a shit if you beat up a child molester yeah which i'm not saying that that's okay 
because mm. you know You're I, don't, I don't think that um oh i won't even get into that i'll just cut that out <laughs> At this point in time, William was only 17 years old. So, you know, he still is where we left off in college yeah. at 17. Right. And like I mentioned earlier as well, he was not doing great in college academically or in general, but he, you know, wasn't doing terrible as far as his grades Right, he's like, like average, right? Yeah. But it seemed he had fallen back into his old habits of committing burglaries and his last almost turned deadly, depending on who you believe. Hmm. According to police, Hirons pulled a gun and tried to shoot at officers as he attempted to flee because they had caught him in the middle of the burglary. But if you believe Hirons, he was the one who was injured after he was struck on the head during the altercation. According to some sources, the burglary consisted of Hiron stealing a dollar bill from the wallet of a woman named Joanne Para. A neighbor witnessed this happen, which led to the chase and the subsequent arrest. I'm not sure what aspect of Hiron's crimes or personality made detectives link him with the three murders, but they set their sights on him. Their other suspect, Richard Thomas, had recanted his confession at this time, so Hiron's was absolutely their prime suspect now. Okay. Hirons claims that investigators basically locked him in an interrogation room for six days, withholding food and beating him. I believe that. Me too. They also kept him from sleeping. Despite the fact that he was still a minor, they prohibited him from seeing his parents and they denied him the ability to speak with a lawyer. He claims he became unconscious at several points throughout the ordeal. Furthermore, police searched his dorm without a search warrant. Most egregiously, without the consent of Hirons or his parents, the state's attorney hired a doctor, Dr. Roy Grinker, to inject Hirons with sodium pentothal, otherwise known as truth serum. Which doesn't work. Right. (laughs) This was also done without a warrant. So they're doing this without a warrant. They're searching his room without a warrant. These guys are just fucking this case up left and right. Yeah, because these things aren't going to be admissible in court. Not only that, but they're going to get sued again. And, and he's going to get his 20 grand. (laughs) (laughs) In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What happened next is again up for debate depending on who you believe. Also, sorry if you can hear our dogs schnarfing in the background. He's just schnarfing away over there. So during the 
truth serum interview, Dr. Grinker and an assisting doctor named Dr. Haynes claimed Hirons talked about an alternate personality named George. He said George was the one who committed the murders. They asked him for the last name of George, to which he responded he couldn't remember, but it was, quote, a murmuring name. Police apparently recorded this as Merman, like that was his last name, George Merman. And the press further distorted it by changing it to Murder Man to grab the attention of readers. (laughs) Hirons himself could not remember much from the interrogation. The doctor said that Hirons told them that he met George when he was about 13. George loved to rob people for fun, and he killed like a cobra when cornered. (laughs) And Hirons complained that he was also getting blamed for the crimes George committed. The psychiatrist said that George was a tool that Hirons used to live a double life, where he was a normal, semi-successful student who was also a cold-blooded killer who had committed the most heinous of crimes. Dr. Grinker came out six years later saying Hirons didn't confess to any of the killings while under the influence of the truth serum, which is suspicious. Yeah. But other investigators claim that after the interrogation with Dr. Grinker and Dr. Haynes, Hirons gave an indirect confession by confirming to them that George Merman may have been responsible for the crime. So crimes. Crimes. Huh. This is strange. Yeah. Police claimed they had more evidence to prove his guilt than just his confession, though. A picture of the ransom note from the Suzanne Dagnan murder had been sent to an artist at the Chicago Daily News named Frank San Hamel in order for him to examine it. What for? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Like, I don't know why they decided to have an artist examine the ransom note. I, I don't know. Like, Maybe the guy's just good at... at- seeing if they're both the same right like he can he's good at copying things maybe so he can see the little details that others can't pick up on i don't know i'm guessing yeah i mean we'd like to think yeah but i don't i don't know what his credentials were or why officers thought he would be helpful but they did they couldn't give him the actual note to to examine because it would break the chain of custody, which is why he had to rely on a photograph of it. Hamel said he had detected hidden indentation writing, referring to the small indents that are left behind when a note is written on top of that piece of paper, if that makes sense. Yeah. For some reason, investigators decided to have him look at the actual ransom note after hearing this. Like I just said, they couldn't give him the actual ransom note because it would break the chain of custody. Now they're like, fuck it, let's go. Yeah. Nobody's going to care. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Idiots. Yeah. So now that they've done that, it's, they've made it inadmissible in court. It's so stupid. This is like car 54. Where are you? Shit. Yeah. So this happened before Hirons was arrested, just so that we have a clear timeline, you know, them showing him this note. But after he was arrested, Hamel told investigators that whatever he was able to read and that those small indentations implicated Hirons. Okay. Yeah. You can't even prove the guy wrote it. 
no no you can't but that that he's he's saying that like those indentations prove that he wrote it because look he wrote this no on top of it and so clearly he he wrote it yeah okay yeah yeah if you say so A handwriting expert named Herbert J. Walter had been contacted to analyze and compare handwriting from Hirons to the handwriting on the ransom note and the handwriting in the lipstick message left on the wall. Walter concluded they both matched Hirons. Police also alleged that they were able to find Hirons' fingerprints at the Brown murder on the door jam, and then also on the ransom note in the Dagnan murder. So mm. they told Hirons that, that his fingerprints were in those two places. Right. Meanwhile, newspapers in Chicago were rabid for information about the case, and the prosecution was eager to feed it to them. Some reporters couldn't wait for information from police and prosecution, so they just made up facts themselves. <laughs> One reporter made up an entire confession. This is insanity. Yeah. On his fifth day in custody, Hirons underwent a spinal tap performed by a different doctor and a nurse. So not the For not the two reason? doctors that did the truth serum interview. For what reason? They were trying to see if he had any abnormalities. Yeah. What? Yeah. Dude, uh, is this just some Wild West shit that I didn't know happened in the 30s and 40s? Like, is this how it was done then? I need to do a dive into this. I need to find out if this is common for back then. I don't know how common this type of shit is, like with spinal taps and stuff. But I, I mean, mean, dude, it's can you imagine getting a spinal tap in 1945? Fuck you. No, I'm no. not doing that today. Yeah. I mean, unless I for sure have meningitis. Right, like unless there's like a, a you know a serious reason why you need it, but I'm not sure if this was done with his consent or not. But it was done without anesthesia, despite the fact <gasps> that it's incredibly painful. What? Immediately after the spinal tap, officers carried Hirons to a police car and drove him to the detective bureau so that he could participate in a lie detector test. With a back, with a hole in his back. Yeah. This was done without his consent. So the lie detector test was done without his consent. The results of this test were inconclusive. (laughs) I can't imagine why. I know, right? What the fuck? Yeah. The next day, detectives forced him to undergo another lie detector test again without his consent. And again, the results were inconclusive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After six days of hell, Hirons was transferred to Cook County Jail. Detectives had not gotten an explicit confession for the three murders, but they had charged him with the crimes related to the burglary he was caught for. That makes sense. Yeah. You gotta hold on to him if you can, you know? Yeah. As he sat in jail, his defense attorneys had been contacted by the prosecutor's office. They wanted to offer him a deal. In exchange for his confessions to the three murders, the prosecution would take the death sentence off the table and he would get one life term with all sentences running concurrently. Prosecutors told them that he would likely get a life sentence just for the burglary anyway, so it wasn't really that bad of a deal. What? 
Life I'm not, sentence for stealing a dollar? Yeah. I don't think so, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. What joker of a fucking defense attorney is going to be like, oh, you know, you're probably right, dude. I, that's what's insane. They completely fucking fail him. <sighs> so I'm not sure if the defense team was brand new and naive, overworked, or just straight up didn't give a shit. But they kind of just accepted the deal without really advocating for their client at all. Maybe this guy's just a total piece of shit, right? Like he's just talking shit. He's an asshole all the time. Mm -hmm. And his defense attorneys are like, fuck this guy. I don't think so. I don't think so. Hiron's defense team worked to convince Hiron's to take the plea bargain. Any hope Hiron's may have had dissipated completely after that article about his confession was published. The one that I was telling you about where the reporter just completely made it up. Right. He knew the public hated him and his lawyers, wait, sorry. Did as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck. This poor guy. Um, and yeah, so his lawyers were just really, really pushing for him to take the plea bargain. I mean, also, if he did it, then he should, right? But yeah, if yeah. he didn't. Also, the police told him they'd found his fingerprints, like I said earlier at the crime scene and on the ransom note, and... Even though he claimed he didn't commit any of these murders, he didn't see how a jury could hear that and not convict him. So he ended up agreeing to take the plea bargain. When the state's attorney, William Tuohy, learned that Hirons agreed to confess, he invited every police officer who had worked on the case to join, as well as a bunch of reporters and photographers. So... Hirons was supposed to come in front of all of these people unbeknownst to him. He didn't know that he had invited all of these people and give the confession in front of them. So basically it's just a big spectacle and it's clear that they want the press and everyone to see this because they've had three murders that have so far been unsolved and, you know, the public and the press has really been on them to solve the murders so bringing him in front of the press to do this will look really good for them. Yeah. But Hirons sabotaged this PR move. As he sat in front of all of these people and Tuo, he asked him to tell the truth. He responded by saying, I don't know and I don't remember because that was the truth. This pissed Tuohi off and he decided to withdraw the condition of concurrent sentences, meaning... Hirons, if either convicted or if he ends up taking this new plea bargain without the concurrent sentences, meaning Hirons would have to serve the sentences consecutively if he is, you know, found guilty or if he takes this new plea bargain. Right. In the end, Hirons was again convinced to confess to the murders. And again, there were tons of people there to observe his confessions. So Hirons claims he just went along with what the prosecution wanted him to say. The prosecution said they had other evidence of Hirons' guilt on top of his confession, and they held it over his head to persuade him. I mean, if I didn't commit a murder, dude, and you say you got evidence, you're going to need to show me that. Well, I mean, he, they, they lied to him. and Well, right. I mean... They kind of lied to everyone, though, really. And we'll get into how they did. So um, they obviously never had to present this evidence at trial, but 
It would be scrutinized later on once several lawyers took up Hiram's case. And like I said, the prosecution said they had other evidence to prove his guilt, and they really held that over his head to persuade him to confess and take the plea deal. Even the stuff that they had was not admissible. Right. There was no way that they were going to be able to get a conviction. And the state's attorney even said that. But obviously, Hirons is behind bars and probably didn't hear that when he said it. And his defense attorneys are really persuading him. Yes. And they bring in his parents as well to have his parents try to persuade him. So that's why he doesn't. I cannot imagine. I know. Sitting there with my father and him saying like, you need to, they're going to screw you. I know. You have to say, you did this. I didn't. I know. (laughs) I'm not saying that. I know. It's such a fucked up case. I actually, I can't believe I've never heard about this before because it's so fucked up. They obviously, I am, I am upset. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And not only is it a complete disservice and to Hirons, but it also is to all of the victims because no one got, no one got justice. And but, future victims. Yeah. Yeah. So they obviously never had to present this evidence at trial, but it would be scrutinized later on once several lawyers took up Hirons case, arguing his sentence should be commuted. Despite the prosecution telling Hirons they had him dead to rights, they really didn't have much evidence at all, like we were just talking about. Yeah. They claimed they found that bloody smudge that matched Hirons' fingerprint at the Brown murder on the door jam. And then they also said that they found nine points of comparison between Hirons' finger and a fingerprint left on the ransom note during the Dagna murder. Uh-huh. But according to Wikipedia... The FBI handbook requires 12 points of comparison that match in order to make a positive identification. And they had only found nine points of comparison. How do these dickheads sleep? And they claimed that was a that was a positive identification. How could you sleep? I don't know. So to put this into perspective, take this with a grain of salt though, because I am not a finger a fingerprint expert. Oh. And this is just what I've read. Those nine points of comparison match 65% of the population. So, like, that's hardly a positive identification. Um, it could have been you or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the... F- I can't believe this. And this is if they were actually truthful about finding them the way that they did, because it's been alleged that they lied about all of the fingerprint evidence. Yeah, they didn't even have a fingerprint. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. The first time they looked at the ransom note, they couldn't find any usable fingerprints on it. So they took the note to the FBI crime lab, hoping they'd have better luck with their advanced technology. And this is how they claim they found the matching prints. But in actuality, the prints were pretty incomplete and the police department's fingerprint expert said they were so incomplete that it was impossible to classify them. When they compared them to every person arrested between January and June of 1946, they, they weren't able to find a match. They all had nine points. Of- 
all but two of them. (laughs) (laughs) But Hirons have been arrested on May 1st, 1946 on an unrelated weapons charge. So they should have matched it to him when they did that. Right. But they didn't. The door jam fingerprint was equally problematic with investigators first saying it didn't match, but changing their mind 12 days later. Some have speculated they may have planted the print because it looks very similar to a rolled print like the ones that they take at the police station. Mm. But if that were the case, then it would have matched Dignan right off the bat, though. So I don't really know about that. Right. It would have been an exact match. Yeah. We have 735 points. of (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The, The handwriting evidence was complete bullshit. Experts have since compared Hiron's handwriting to the ransom note and the writing on the wall, and they've all concluded it does not match. But it should have been obvious at the time, too, since the expert who claimed they both matched Hiron's had previously claimed that the two had been written by different people. So he said that writing on the wall and the ransom note writing are those are written by two different people. So I mean, there were two separate murders. Yeah, so they're not even connected? Yeah, that's what he said at first. And then he said, oh, wait, no, they both, they both match Hirons. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> I don't want them to put me in a jail cell with a blindfold on and hang me upside down. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. What the fuck? Give me my $20,000. <laughs> so, so meanwhile, well, I don't know if it's time to jump to this, but it sounds to me like we still have a killer on the loose. Yeah. That can't stop killing people. That's that's what he said. So either he's dead or the other killings were not, um, they were covered up to be connected. Like if there were other killings by the guy that did it, they were not connected by the police that are trying to railroad this motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. Or the guy just wrote that. Yeah. I can't and stop it's, it's and possible. Because like, it, it could have been done by someone close to her and they didn't want the police to know that they were trying to make it seem like they, you know, were a serial killer of sorts or something like that. The indentations on the ransom note have been proven to be a hoax, probably to help sell newspapers. You're kidding. (laughs) None of the evidence officers found in Hiron's home was admissible in court because they didn't get a search warrant beforehand. Like I had mentioned. And most of the evidence they found consisted of stolen items that were just pretty obscure, like a scrapbook that had pictures of Nazis in it. That's weird. Police were able to find the original owner of it, which was a war veteran named Harry Gold. Apparently, Gold lived in the same area as the Dagnans, and Hirons had broken into his place the same night that Suzanne was killed. I think that would be suspicious in conjunction with other evidence, but I don't think it means much on its own like they all lived kind of close to each other anyways so yeah of course he's yeah. breaking into places near him well i'm just saying he he broke into this house and also committed a murder right like that like it, uh, it that's a busy like, night dude yeah yeah it seems like it would almost rule him out more than yeah. rule him in yeah that's that's almost an alibi sorry i was committing a crime somewhere else yeah yeah Many other stolen items were found, and there is one in particular that is quite alarming and apparently connected to another crime. It was a Colt police positive revolver that had been stolen from a man named Guy Roderick. 
Two nights later, a bullet was shot through the window of an eighth floor apartment. The woman who lived there was named Marion Caldwell, and she was injured by it. Oh, God. Police were able to confirm that it was that gun that shot that bullet. And it was two days after Hirons had stole it. So hmm. yeah, that was probably him. Yeah. But he's just, it, to me, it sounds like he's just kind of Stealing. reckless. Yeah. Right. Um, And he probably shot a gun through a window randomly. Yeah. Like, uh, that sounds like fun. Boom. Right. Not thinking that there might be somebody else that gets killed. Yeah. Or hurt. Yeah. You know, he's just. But um, they didn't even charge him with that crime. Like. Oh my God. What the fuck? They had him on that one. I know. Like, what the fuck? I know. I know. (laughs) You want to lock this guy up so bad. Use something that is legit. Yeah, I don't understand why they didn't. It sounds like they need to put the guy in jail, right? I mean, he needs to be taken away from society because he's a menace. But that doesn't mean he dismembered a six-year-old. Right, right. It's a totally different ballgame. And I, I don't think he needs to be taken away for the rest of his life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the punishments were then for robbing people. I mean, maybe it was really high because we're coming out of the, dep- you know, the Great Depression. You know, they may have, like, people were desperate. I mean, he's 17 years old. I, I don't think that he would have yeah. gotten a life sentence. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to think he wouldn't. Um, Because, you know, at this point, he has taken this plea deal and he's been sentenced to three life sentences served consecutively right he's never one getting after out. the other right, he never will out. never get out even yeah. if he gets paroled on the first one yeah or the first two yeah and then there was another thing that was kind of weird but when you really look at it, it i don't think it's really that as bad as it seems right away so he also stole a knife from guy roderick and he told detectives because at this point he's telling them what they want to hear he told detectives that he used it to dismember Suzanne Degnan and then he threw it near the L subway tracks. Since police officers never searched that area, reporters looking into the case asked the track crew if they had come across any knives and the crew had actually found a knife near the tracks and they kept it in the storage room at the Granville station. Investigators were able to retrieve the knife and they showed it to Guy Roderick and he was able to positively identify it as his knife that had been stolen by Hirons. Okay. But as suspicious as that might be, it doesn't really prove anything because they never forensically tested the knife. Yeah. I mean, to you don't see know if, if it was used in it. the Dagnum murder yeah, you don't to begin it. with. The kid just threw the knife there and he's like, yeah, there's a knife right there. Yeah, exactly. He's like trying to prove his guilt now. So he doesn't get killed. Yeah. Right. So if it isn't clear by now, Hiron's attorneys completely failed him. And this was laid out in the petition for clemency, you know. Right. Um, But unfortunately, this petition was denied. He was paroled, I believe, on the first sentence, but he still had two two more more to go. This is especially surprising considering Hirons was a model inmate for his entire prison stay. He ended up being the first prisoner in Illinois to earn a bachelor's degree in prison, and he was responsible for helping to set up educational programs behind bars. He also helped inmates with their cases, so he became almost like a prison lawyer of sorts, like, sure. um, you know, trying to help 
other inmates, even though he has gotten such a terrible, terrible, like, what is the word that I'm looking for? Shake of the stick. (laughs) That's not even a fucking... He got a terrible, phrase. terrible shake of the stick. <laughs> it's not it, even it is, a phrase. No, it it's yes, not. It is. Yeah, it is. No, it's not. Sure is. Oh, my God. Okay. It um, is. It is. So that's it. He ended up dying on March 12th, 2012 from complications related to his diabetes. And he was behind bars. I mean, he died in the hospital, but he was taken there from, you know, his prison cell. And since then there, I mean, there hasn't been any updates. I, I don't think that cause the cases are considered closed. So obviously the people who tried to help him get out of prison did try to talk about alternate suspects and the main alternate suspect is the one that they had been looking at before him. Um, Sherman. No. Um, Richards. Uh, what the fuck? I wonder if, I wonder if he pickpocketed that handkerchief and it was him all along. That's how it got from New York city to Chicago. You're saying that you think that Hirons went to New York city and pickpocketed it. I mean, he guy's a thief. Okay. But I don't think he ever went to New York city. So, well, I mean, I heard that in the interrogation, he said he did. <laughs> <laughs> this is fucking awful. They just completely railroaded this guy. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the hurricane. You ever see the hurricane? Mm-mm. It's about Denzel Washington is in it. It's a great movie. Uh, it's about a boxer, heavyweight champion who they said was near uh, a murder scene. Yes. Okay. I do know what you're And then he about. gets put in prison, right? Yes. And eventually he got out. But, I mean, that stuff happened a lot yeah. then. And I think it might still happen, yeah. right? Uh, but now the way forensics evidence is, you know, you your innocence can be proven. Yeah. As well as guilt. Yeah. Yeah. And they have, you know, now... Uh, I'm not sure when these laws came into effect and I'd, I'd like to know more about this stuff, but the prosecution has to tell the defense exactly what they have. Yeah. I, I feel like that probably was the case back then too. Maybe. And his defense just completely fucking failed him. I just can't. Yeah. It's a Brady violation if you don't. Yeah, but when did the Brady law come in? That's what I don't know. I don't know that for sure. I was just guessing, but tried, they railroaded Brady too. <laughs> um, but yeah, it happened a lot more than you would like to think. And yeah. it probably still happens There's more than we would of, like to think. A ton of innocent people in prison. Especially yeah. minorities. Oh yeah, it absolutely happens Immigrants, to minorities, minorities more kinds, than yeah. More than um, white people. 1963. Is that when? That's when the Brady Law. Uh, is it Brady Law or Brady Violation? If, if 
when they, the prosecution withholds evidence or whatever, that's a Brady violation. And it was decided in the Supreme court in 1963. Okay. So yeah, that would have been after this case. 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. So there must have been, I, I want to read about this or that I'm sure there's a book or something about the evolution of our court system. Oh, Cause this yeah. is fascinating in, in the worst way. And I, that's what I like about our podcast and all true crime podcasts is the absolute twisted fucking people. And how did they get to be like this? How did they live like that? It fascinates me. It freaks me out. And at this point, I'm thinking about the attorneys. Yeah. How can you go home and have a drink and dinner with your wife and go to bed? Yeah. Oh, case solved. Yeah. What another one today, honey? Yeah. And they, they know that they lied about they, this of stuff. Of course they like know they, they lied. They, all of the people complicit in putting him behind bars, like the doctors, the attorneys, the defense attorneys that agreed to persuade him to confess. Right. His like, parents. Well, no, his parents didn't know better. No, his parents didn't know better. They got railroaded too. Yeah, because his parents were told, your son is for sure going to go away for life if he's convicted and he's for sure going to get the death sentence if he's convicted. Right. And they just believed that because why Why would his defense attorneys lie to them? You know, his defense attorneys had to had to have known. I mean, literally, unless I, like I said, they were brand fucking new and completely naive. Even then. Yeah. Like, like they, brand new, you're fresh out of law school. You know that that's bullshit. Yeah. They had to have known that there's no way that they would have even convicted him on those murders. I mean, quite literally, the state's attorney said that they, he said we wouldn't have been able to, wouldn't have been able to get a conviction if he doesn't or didn't confess. Right. It's insane. So, yeah, I feel terrible for everyone, for Hirons, I feel terrible for all of the victims and the victims' families. Oh, and also some of the victims' family members came out afterwards and said, I don't think that he is responsible for the murder of my loved one. Yeah, he's a 17-year-old kid. Yeah. It's unlikely. Yeah. It happens, but so dismembered at 17? Like, who does that? It's you know? just like the he doesn't fit profile of what at they all. were looking for at all. He seems much more like an impulsive, stupid kid making bad decisions. Yep. Like shooting through a window. Yeah. So that is one of the cases that inspired the movie Black Christmas. And like I said, we might do the other case this next episode, or we will just wait until next December to do it. But either way, yeah, I there know will more. be another episode. I want to know more. I, I hate this shit. And I, I get fired up about injustices like this more than I think anything else. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's so horrifying, frustrating and scary because it could happen to anyone. That is just terrifying. And it, the, the helplessness that you would feel is 
I can't even think about it. Can it's you so imagine scary. that like you're just picked up no. and taken to a jail cell and beaten? No, no. Getting a spinal tap. Like, are you fucking kidding me? All sorts that like, there's no reason that they needed to know if he had any abnormalities like that. That had to have just been a torture technique. Or they were trying to use it against him, which they probably could have back then. Based on what I've seen so far, they could have said, oh, no, he's got mental problems. Yeah, you know, that that's true. That's he true. He hit his head when he was a kid. Here but that also could have been used by the defense. So. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know I, it what, seems like it just had to have been a torture technique. Like, I don't, I don't understand what possible reason they would need for that. But it's insanity. Yeah. All right. I want to come back to this soon. Yes. So like one year from now. <laughs> <laughs> so we will talk to all of you guys soon. Thank you so, so much for listening. And if you have any time and you would be willing to write a review and leave us a rating we would appreciate that so incredibly much yeah. it really really helps us any feedback positive or negative well lean towards the if positive. you want to leave <laughs> negative feedback please don't do that <laughs> with, <laughs> in, in the, the form of a rating. Please just yeah, email it to email. us. Yeah. And we are definitely going to do, we've gotten suggestions from people. So yours will be coming very soon. I promise you. Okay. I love you all so, so much. Thank you all so much. And we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.